Section 17 of Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident. Chapter 8. Pressures on the System. Part 1. With the 1982 completion of the Orbital Flight Test Series, NASA began a planned acceleration of the Space Shuttle launch schedule. One early plan contemplated an eventual rate of emission a week, but realism forced several downward revisions. In 1985, NASA published a projection calling for an annual rate of 24 flights by 1990. Long before the Challenger accident, however, it was becoming obvious that even the modified goal of two flights a month were overambitious. In establishing this schedule, NASA had not provided adequate resources for its attainment. As a result, the capacities of the system were strained by the modest nine-mission rate of 1985, and the evidence suggested that NASA would not have been able to accomplish the 15 flights scheduled for 1986. These are the major conclusions of a commission examination of the pressures and problems attendant upon the accelerated launch schedule. On the same day that the initial orbital tests concluded, July 4, 1982, President Reagan announced a national policy to set the direction of the U.S. space program during the following decade. As part of that policy, the President stated that the United States Space Transportation System the STS, is the primary space launch system for both national security and civil government missions. Additionally, he said the first priority of the STS program is to make the system fully operational and cost-effective in providing routine access to space. From the inception of the shuttle, NASA had been advertising a vehicle that would make space operations routine and economical. The greater the annual number of flights, the greater the degree of routinization and economy. So heavy emphasis was placed on the schedule. However, the attempt to build up to 24 missions a year brought a number of difficulties. Among them, the compression of training schedules, the lack of spare parts, and the focusing of resources on near-term problems. One effect of NASA's accelerated flight rate and the agency's determination to meet it, was the dilution of the human and material resources that could be applied to any particular flight. The part of the system responsible for turning the mission requirements and objectives into flight software, flight trajectory information, and crew training materials was struggling to keep up with the flight rate in late 1985, and forecasts showed it would be unable to meet its milestones for 1986. It was falling behind because its resources were strained to the limit, strained by the flight rate itself, and by the constant changes it was forced to respond to within that accelerating schedule. Compounding the problem was the fact that NASA had difficulty evolving from its single-flight focus to a system that could efficiently support the projected flight rate. It was slow in developing a hardware maintenance plan for its reusable fleet, and slow in developing the capabilities that would allow it to handle the higher volume of work and training associated with the increased flight frequency. Pressures developed 
because of the need to meet customer commitments, which translated into a requirement to launch a certain number of flights per year and to launch them on time. Such considerations may occasionally have obscured engineering concerns. Managers may have forgotten, partly because of past successes, partly because of their own well-nurtured image of the program, that the shuttle was still in a research and development phase. In his testimony before a U.S. Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on May 5, 1982, following the third flight of the space shuttle, James Beggs, then the NASA Administrator, expressed NASA's commitment. The highest priority we have set for NASA is to complete the development of the shuttle and turn it into an operational system. Safety and reliability of flight and the control of operational costs are primary objectives as we move forward with the shuttle program. Sixteen months later, arguing in support of the space station, Mr. Beggs said, We can start any time. There's no compelling reason why it has to be 1985 rather than 86 or 87. The point that we have made is that the shuttle is now operational. The prevalent attitude in the program appeared to be that the shuttle should be ready to emerge from the developmental stage, and managers were determined to prove it operational. Various aspects of the mission design and development process were directly affected by that determination. The sections that follow will discuss the pressures exerted on the system by the flight rate, the reluctance to relax the optimistic schedule, and the attempt to assume an operational status. Planning of a Mission The planning and preparation for a space shuttle flight require close coordination among those making the flight manifest, those designing the flight, and the customers contracting NASA's services. The goals are to establish the manifest, define the objectives, constraints, and capabilities of the mission, and translate those into hardware, software, and flight procedures. There are major program decision points in the development of every shuttle flight. At each of these points, sometimes called freeze points, decisions are made that form the basis for further engineering and process development. The disciplines affected by these freeze points include integration hardware, engineering, crew timeline, flight design, and crew training. The first major freeze point is at launch minus 15 months. At that time, the flight is officially defined. The launch date, orbiter, and major payloads are all specified, and initial design and engineering are begun based on this information. The second major freeze point is at launch minus 7.7 months, the cargo integration review. During this review, the integration hardware design, orbiter vehicle configuration, flight design, and software requirements are agreed to and specified. Further design and engineering can then proceed. Another major freeze point is the flight planning and stowage review at launch minus five months. At that time, the crew activity timeline and the crew compartment configuration, which includes mid-deck payloads and Payload specialist assignments are established. Final design, engineering, and training are based on these products. Development of flight products. The production process begins by collecting all mission objectives, requirements, and constraints specified by the payload and space shuttle communities 
at the milestones described above. That information is interpreted and assimilated as various groups generate products required for a space shuttle flight, trajectory data, consumables requirements, orbital flight software, mission control center software, and the crew activity plan, to name just a few. Some of these activities can be done in parallel, but many are serial. Once a particular process has started, if a substantial change is made to the flight, not only does the process have to be started again, but the process that preceded it and supplied its data may also need to be repeated. If one group fails to meet its due date, the group that is next in the chain will start late. The delay then cascades through the system. Were the elements of the system meeting their schedules, although each group believed it had an adequate amount of time allotted to perform its function, the system as a whole was falling behind. Graph depicts beginning of simulated training for shuttle crews in days before launch for missions 41B through 61E. An assessment of the system's overall performance is best made by studying the process at the end of the production chain, crew training. Analysis of training schedules for previous flights and projected training schedules for flights in the spring and summer of 1986 reveals a clear trend. Less and less time was going to be available for crew members to accomplish their required training. See the shuttle mission simulator training chart. The production system was disrupted by several factors, including increased flight rate, lack of efficient production processing, and manifest changes. Changes in the manifest. Each process in the production cycle is based on information agreed upon at one of the freeze points. If that information is later changed, the process may have to be repeated. The change could be a change in manifest or a change to the orbiter hardware or software. The hardware and software changes in 1985 usually were mandatory changes. Perhaps some of the manifest changes were not. The changes in the manifest were caused by factors that fall into four general categories. Hardware problems, customer requests, operational constraints, and external factors. The significant changes made in 1985 are shown in the accompanying table. The following examples illustrate that a single proposed change can have extensive impact, not because the change itself is particularly difficult to accommodate, though it may be, but because each change necessitates four or five other changes. The cumulative effect can be substantial. See the impact of manifest changes chart. When a change occurs, the program must choose a response and accept the consequences of that response. The options are usually to either maximize the benefit to the customer or to minimize the adverse impact on space shuttle operations. If the first option is selected, the consequences will include short-term and or long-term effects. Hardware problems can cause extensive changes in the payload manifest. The 51-E mission was on the launch pad, only days from launch, with a tracking and data relay satellite and telesat satellite in the cargo bay, when a hardware problem in the tracking satellite was discovered. The flight was canceled, and the payload reassigned. The cancellation resulted in major changes to several succeeding flights, 
Mission 51-D, scheduled to fly two months later, was changed to add the telesat and delete the retrieval of the long-duration exposure facility. The retrieval mission was then added to Mission 61-I, replacing another satellite. A new mission, 61-M, was scheduled for July 1986 to accommodate the tracking and data relay satellite and the displaced satellite, and all flights scheduled later in 1986 slipped to make room for 61-M. Customers occasionally have notified NASA headquarters of a desire to change the scheduled launch date because of development problems, financial difficulties, or changing market conditions. NASA generally accedes to these requests and has never imposed the penalties available. An example is the request made to delay the flight of the Westar satellite from Mission 61-C, December of 1985, to a flight in March 1986. Westar was added to Flight 61-E, and the Gateway Special Bridge Assembly was removed to make room for it. The HS-376 satellite slot was deleted from 51-L and added to 61-C. The Spartan-Haley satellite was deleted from 61-D and added to 51-L. Thus, four flights experienced major payload changes as a result of one customer's request. Hardware Problems Tracking and Data Relay Satellite Cancelled 51-E Added 61-M Synchronous Communication Satellite Added to 61-C Synchronous Communication Satellite Removed from 61-C OV-102 Late Delivery from Palmdale Changed 251-G, 51-I, and 61-A. Customer Requests HS-376 removed from 51-I. G-Star removed from 61-C. Satellite Television Corporation Direct Broadcast Satellite removed from 61-E. Westar removed from 61-C. Satellite Television Corporation Direct Broadcast Satellite removed from 61-H. Electrophoresis Operations in Space removed from 61-B. Electrophoresis Operations in Space removed from 61-H. Hubble Space Telescope Swap with Earth Observation Mission. Operational Constraints no launch window for Skynet Indian satellite combination, 61-H. Unacceptable structural loads for tracking in data relay satellite Indian satellite, 61-H. Landing weight above allowable limits for each of the following missions, 61-A, 61-E, 71-A, 61-K. External Factors Late edition of Senator Jake Garn, A. Utah, 51-D. Late edition of Representative Bill Nelson, D. Florida, 61-C. Late edition of Physical Vapor Transport Organic Solid Experiment, 51-I. Graph shows that changes to the payload manifest for shuttle missions 
can boost Johnson Space Center workload as much as 130%. Operational constraints, for example, a constraint on the total cargo weight, are imposed to ensure that the combination of payloads does not exceed the orbiter's capabilities. An example involving the Earth Observation Mission Space Lab flight is presented in the NASA Mission Planning and Operations Team Report in Appendix J. That case illustrates that changes resulting from a single instance of a weight constraint violation can cascade through the entire schedule. External factors have been the cause of a number of changes in the manifest as well. The changes discussed above involve major payloads, but changes to other payloads or to payload specialists can create problems as well. One small change does not come alone. It generates several others. A payload specialist was added to Mission 61-C only two months before its scheduled liftoff. Because there were already seven crew members assigned to the flight, one had to be removed. The use payload specialist was removed from 61-C to 51-L just three months before 51-L was scheduled to launch. His experiments were also added to 51-L. Two mid-deck experiments were deleted from 51-L as a result, and the deleted experiments would have reappeared on later flights. Graph depicts beginning of simulator training for shuttle crews in days before launch for missions 51-L through 61-K. Launch minus 77 days is normal training date start. Again, a single late change affected at least two flights, very late in the planning and preparation cycles. The effects of such changes in terms of budget, cost, and manpower can be significant. In some cases, the allocation of additional resources allows the change to be accommodated with little or no impact to the overall schedule. In those cases, steps that need to be redone can still be accomplished before their deadlines. The amount of additional resources required depends, of course, on the magnitude of the change and when the change occurs. Early changes, those before the cargo integration review, have only a minimal impact. Changes at launch minus five months, two months after the cargo integration review, can carry a major impact, increasing the required resources by approximately 30%. In the missions from 41-C to 51-L, only 60% of the major changes occurred before the cargo integration review. More than 20% occurred after launch minus five months and caused disruptive budget and manpower impacts. Engineering flight products are generated under a contract that allows for increased expenditures to meet occasional high workloads. Even with this built-in flexibility, however, the requested changes occasionally saturate facilities and personnel capabilities. The strain on resources can be tremendous. For short periods of two to three months in mid-1985 and early 1986, facilities and personnel were required to perform at roughly twice the budgeted flight rate. If a change occurs late enough, it will have an impact on the serial processes. In these cases additional resources will not alleviate the problem, and the effect of the change is absorbed by all downstream processes, and ultimately 
by the last element in the chain. In the case of the flight design and software reconfiguration process, the last element is crew training. In January 1986, the forecasts indicated that crews on flights after 51-I would have significantly less time than desired to train for their flights. See the simulation training chart. According to astronaut Henry Hartsfield, had we not had the accident, we were going to be up against a wall. STS-61-H would have had to have averaged 31 hours in the simulator to accomplish their required training, and STS-61-K would have to average 33 hours. That is ridiculous. For the first time, somebody was going to have to stand up and say, we have got to slip the launch because we are not going to have the crew trained. Operational Capabilities For a long time during shuttle development, the program focused on a single flight, the first space shuttle mission. When the program became operational, flights came more frequently, and the same resources that had been applied to one flight had to be applied to several flights concurrently. Accomplishing the more pressing immediate requirements diverted attention from what was happening to the system as a whole. That appears to be one of the main telling differences between a research and development program and an operational program. Some of the differences are philosophical, some are attitudinal, and some are practical. Elements within the shuttle program try to adapt their philosophy, their attitude, and their requirements to the operational era. But that era came suddenly, and in some cases, there had not been enough preparation for what operational might entail. For example, routine and regular post-flight maintenance and inspections are critical in an operational program. Spare parts are critical to flight readiness in an operational fleet. And the software tools and training facilities developed during a test program may not be suitable for the high volume of work required in an operational environment. In many respects, the system was not prepared to meet an operational schedule. As the space shuttle system matured, with numerous changes and compromises, a comprehensive set of requirements was developed to ensure the success of a mission. What evolved? was a system in which the pre-flight processing, flight planning, flight control, and flight training were accomplished with extreme care applied to every detail. This process checked and rechecked everything, and though it was both labor and time intensive, it was appropriate and necessary for a system still in the developmental phase. The process, however, was not capable of meeting the flight rate goals. After the first series of flights, the system developed plans to accomplish what was required to support the flight rate. The challenge was to streamline the processes through automation, standardization, and centralized management, and to convert from the developmental phase to the mature system without a compromise in quality. It required that experts carefully analyze their areas to determine what could be standardized and automated then take the time to do it. But the increasing flight rate had priority. Quality products had to be ready on time. Further, schedules and budgets for developing the needed facility improvements were not adequate. 
only the time and resources left after supporting the flight schedule could be directed toward efforts to streamline and standardize. In 1985, NASA was attempting to develop the capabilities of a production system, but it was forced to do that while responding with the same personnel to a higher flight rate. At the same time the flight rate was increasing, a variety of factors reduced the number of skilled personnel available to deal with it. These included retirements, hiring freezes, transfers to other programs like the space station, and transitioning to a single contractor for operations support. The flight rate did not appear to be based on assessment of available resources and capabilities, and was not reduced to accommodate the capacity of the workforce. For example, on January 1, 1986, a new contract took effect at Johnson that consolidated the entire contractor workforce under a single company. This transition was another disturbance at a time when the workforce needed to be performing at full capacity to meet the 1986 flight rate. In some important areas, a significant fraction of workers elected not to change contractors. This reduced the workforce and its capabilities and necessitated intensive training programs to qualify the new personnel. According to projections, the workforce would not have been back to full capacity until the summer of 1986. This drain on a critical part of the system came just as NASA was beginning the most challenging phase of its flight schedule. Similarly, at Kennedy, the capabilities of the shuttle processing and facility support workforce became increasingly strained as the orbiter turnaround time decreased to accommodate the accelerated launch schedule. This factor had resulted in overtime percentages of almost 28% in some directorates. Numerous contract employees have worked 72 hours per week or longer and frequent 12-hour shifts. The potential implications of such overtime for safety were made apparent during the attempted launch of Mission 61-C on January 6, 1986, when fatigue and shift work were cited as major contributing factors to a serious incident involving a liquid oxygen depletion that occurred less than five minutes before scheduled liftoff. The issue of workload at Kennedy is discussed in more detail in Appendix G. Another example of a system designed during the developmental phase and struggling to keep up with operational requirements is the Shuttle Mission Simulator. There are currently two simulators. They support the bulk of a crew's training for ascent, orbit, and entry phases of a shuttle mission. Studies indicate two simulators can support no more than 12 to 15 flights per year. The flight rate at the time of the accident was about to saturate the system's capability to provide trained astronauts for those flights. Furthermore, the two existing simulators are out of date and require constant attention to keep them operating at capacity, to meet even the rate of 12 to 15 flights per year. Although there are plans to improve capability, funds for those improvements are minimal and spread out over a 10-year period. This is another clear demonstration that the system was trying to develop its capabilities to meet an operational schedule, but was not given the time, opportunity, or resources to do it. End of section 17.